Hello and welcome to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast, a podcast that focuses on our distinct approach to this amazing system of understanding human nature. My name is Mario Sakura, coming to you from Philadelphia, and I'm joined by Maria Jose Munita. Hello from Santiago, Chile. And Tamar Zanati. Hello from Cairo, Egypt. We are partners at Awareness to Action International, a consulting firm specializing in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In this season of the podcast, we are focusing on exploring each of the three instinctual biases and nine strategies through the lens of a movie, looking at one movie that we feel represents the essence of the bias or type. So make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the program. Hello, everybody. I just want to start off by saying I have no responsibilities here whatsoever, and which is a line from the movie that we're going to be talking about today, A Few Good Men. I'm Mario Sakura, and I am joined as ever with my co-hosts, uh, Maria Jose Monita. Hello. And with Tamara Zanatti. Hello. All right, guys. So we're talking about Enneagram Type 1 and the movie A Few Good Men. And uh, Maria Jose is grinning from ear to ear just at the uh, the, the the opportunity to talk about uh, Enneagram Type 1. You know, it just occurred to me as I was thinking about this podcast that we've kind of gone in order of our Enneagram types, right? So 8, 9, and 1, uh, which each of us are. So uh, do we even have any interest in continuing after today's session is my big question. No, I think we can <laughs> stop here. <laughs> we can stop here. It, it only goes downhill from here (laughs) because after all i mean who really cares about anything but our own enneagram type right Uh, that's what it comes down to so now we are going to continue and we're going to talk about uh, enneagram type two next time but again i just want to reiterate that as we do these we are not specifically talking about characters in the movie okay i think some of the movies we might emphasize more the star of the movie and uh, that person's enneagram type but what we're really trying to do is capture the theme of the Enneagram type through the theme of the movie. And I think this movie captures the uh, theme of Enneagram type one really, really well. What do you guys think about that? I agree. It's funny. My feeling after watching the movie was it felt so natural to me, which is like (laughs) my world. And it's not that I'm (laughs) the Marine Corps or anything like that, but the approach to life, the struggles, all the contradictions, all it's just something that I have worked with and thought about for so long. So it's it was just easy for me to kind of interpret, to understand the characters in the movie. And I'm a type one in case people who are li- listening don't know that. <laughs> What are your thoughts, Tamar? Yeah, I guess the representation of the institution of military was like presenting uh, this uh, process and, you know, commitment to details and system and the rules and everything. So it was very obvious in the movie. And uh, if I would uh, follow the same uh, path of Maria Jose for me, it was very stressful. <laughs> 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 I, I, I'm more aligned with you on this, Tamara, because the, really the movie was all about the tension between doing the right thing and doing the expedient thing. 
and what is the right thing in a complex world. So this tension is really, really tough for a one. You know, as Maria Jose said, it's kind of the you know the, the world that she is living in, and I think particularly this really represents the navigating one mindset uh, really, really well. Also, so it's hitting you with kind of a double dose here, Maria Jose. Yeah, and I and I could see quite a bit of the transmitting one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that we're going to discuss the subtypes at the end, but I could see at least both. And if I think about it, there's certainly behind the scenes a lot of preserving one, things that are not Absolutely. in the movie. But I can see both. Right. You make a great point there. And um, I, I, I guess we should save this as far as the distinctions until uh, a little bit later on. But uh, you, you really can see all three, mm-hmm. the themes of all three instinctual biases of the one uh, captured here. The uh, the movie A Few Good Men was released in 1992, December 1992, and just a quick, brief introduction. So uh, it stars Tom Cruise as Lieutenant Daniel Caffey. Uh, he's a military lawyer defending two U.S. Marines charged with killing a fellow Marine at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba. Although Caffey is known for seeking plea bargains, a fellow lawyer, Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway, played by Demi Moore, convinces him that the accused Marines were most likely carrying out an order from a commanding officer. Caffey takes a risk by calling Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, to the stand in an effort to uncover the conspiracy. Uh, That sums it up uh, pretty quickly, and we'll we'll come back to that. A lot of stars in this movie, a lot of, um, at the time, well, uh, the the screenwriter, uh, we'll talk about in a minute, but a very uh, famous screenwriter, Aaron Sorkin, and a director, Rob Reiner, who was really, really big in the 80s and early 90s, uh, made some really great movies. So, But before we get into the movie, let's talk about the Enneagram Type 1, okay? So, Maria Jose, since, you know, you know this from the inside, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Type 1? Type 1, the preferred strategy, striving to feel perfect. And if we go to the classical Enneagram, anger is the passion and resentment, resentment, the fixation, and there's, they're, so they happen when there's this feeling of the one that things are not as they should be, and that causes anger. They should be like that. And there's this thinking about um, how it should have been done, or what should have happened and didn't happen, and so all that phenomena happens in the mind, and it's what they one feels and it's it causes kind of rigidity and tension and all the things that we know about ones and so there's a lot of good about this strategy i think ones kind of uh get beaten up a little bit on in the enneagram literature and uh probably by no one else more than themselves right so there is this tendency to look at the negative in the one but it's not because they're just looking for the negative. They're looking for how to fix things the way things should be. So uh, you may remember we were in a uh, we were doing a training one time, and a couple of the ones said that it's not so much about striving to feel perfect, but it's about being beyond reproach, right? yeah. which uh, was interesting. So it's it's to be able to be free from criticism by other people. Um, let's say a little bit about that, Maria Jose. It's interesting because I've seen it a lot myself. Like sometimes there's this feeling that if nobody's watching, 
doesn't really matter if I do things that are not perfect, <laughs> but <laughs> if somebody's watching and I could be subject of criticism, then it matters more. And it doesn't mean that I'll um, do anything, but if I'm on the edge, that can help me make the call if I'm going to do that, something that it might be wrong or not. Uh, so I agree with that, being beyond uh, reproach, yeah. because it, it matters. Yeah. Now, maybe it's because I'm a navigating one, but... Yeah, so again, with these strategies, you know, we always like to say that uh, people kind of bring their own understanding to the term, right? Their own interpretation to the term. And there's no singular right answer to this. Is it striving to be perfect? Is it striving to be beyond reproach? The, the main point is that it's about this feeling need. Right. This, you know, and again, with all these strategies, like we talked about before, it starts with this need to feel a certain way. And that tends to shape the way we think because we're going to think in ways that make us feel the way we want to feel. And then we're going to act in ways that are logically consistent with our patterns of thinking. So, yeah. what we see, yeah, go ahead. Now, that so this has to do with the movie, but when this feeling, this feeling need of uh, striving, of Wanting to feel perfect um, makes us think about things that will help us accomplish that. And those things usually have to do with the rules and processes and things that will ensure that things are perfect. Therefore, I'll feel perfect. And we do things that are consistent with that. Now, throughout the movie, we'll see that not always the right thing, the perfect thing, or the right thing will lead you to the perfect outcome. And, and, I, and I, that's what I liked about the movie, is that it shows that almost as a contradiction, but it's a path of growth, I think. Mm -hmm. It's understanding how certain things might not be the perfect thing to do, but takes you to the perfect outcome. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, Tamara, what would you add to that? I, I like that the, the movies that we chose so far they really deliver the message of the strategy or the um, instinctual bias that, uh, of the theme in the very beginning. And it keeps on keeping this rhythm as we go in a very strong way that keeps on saying this. I mean, this theme is about striving to feel so and so. And this, in this case, the few, uh, few good men is striving to feel perfect or beyond reproach, as you have said. What I have seen actually is, is, is a very interesting philosophical uh, argument about what is really right. So, mm -hmm. because it was like both sides of the trial. I mean, when we get into the story, uh, the trial, both sides was really trying to make, uh, to, uh, to defend what is right. And at the end, if I don't really get into details, the question would be, what did, what did I do wrong? And, mm -hmm. and there, wa there was a very interesting answer to that. Yeah. So I, yeah. I will keep it until then. So it's, it's really a very f philosophical question and that apply on any uh, INIA type. So how do we apply our strategy? Do we apply it in an adaptive way or maladaptive way? And that is the key question, right? There's nothing wrong with the strategy. There's nothing wrong with having a preferred strategy, a kind of a habitual strategy. It's only a matter of are we applying it adaptively in a way that makes us happier and the people around us happier? Or are we using it in a way that's maladaptive and causes us and the people around us to suffer? 
Okay, so this is the question we always want to keep coming back to. The preferred strategy for the one is striving to feel perfect. Again, we like to talk about the two connecting points, and uh, we think of the connecting point seven as the neglected strategy. And sevens, I'm sorry, ones kind of feel this discomfort or distrust or have a cognitive distortion around the strategy of striving to feel excited. And uh, I think there's some good instances of that in the movie. And also there's this connection to point four, which we call the support strategy, right? So there's striving to feel unique, which shows itself in the one as this, you know, kind of self-pity that happens with ones of, uh, you know, I'm the only one who's doing it right. I'm the only one who's working so hard. I'm the only one who cares. Uh, So they have that connection to four. With the strategy of striving to feel excited, it feels like for the one that bad things are going to happen. Too much excitement can only lead to the wrong things. And that's almost the opposite of striving to feel perfect. So it's kind of avoided. And on the other hand, with striving to feel unique, this self-pity you're talking about, it's also a way to justify the things that they do. Mm-hmm. It's uh, So I'm doing these things because nobody else understands. Only I do. Only I care enough. So that's why I do it. Because otherwise, how do I justify certain things? And and I think, too, we should be fair to ones when we talk about this connection of point four. And it's not just about self-pity, but it's also about this courage to be the one who stands alone, right? And again, it's something we see in the the movie, uh, particularly in Joanne Galloway, who probably is uh, a a type one. The character is a type one in the movie, for sure, I think. Um, So there is this, you know, willingness to push ahead, even in the face of a disagreement from everybody. I mean, she's got this singular vision that she's going to stick to. Yeah, so there's a vision of a perfect world, and I'll make it perfect. Even if it's a small world, I mean, my just inner circle or the whole world. And a willingness to sacrifice myself. So it's a very noble way, I think, of approaching life, which has adaptive and maladaptive things. Yeah. With the dynamics, with the the strategy of striving to feel uh, excited, you would rarely see a smile or a laughter in the the whole movie. I mean, most of the characters are so serious. I mean, only Tom Cruise is really... Right, he's the only one having any fun, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's so obvious, you know. It's funny, I didn't even pay attention to that. (laughs) So, so one of the, uh, the the points we kind of skipped over here, we like to talk about the, um, you know, the, the so-called virtue of each Enneagram type. And that virtue for the type one is serenity. Right? And so one of the growth paths for them in the traditional Enneagram is to move from this anger and resentment to a place of serenity, a peacefulness with themselves, a peacefulness with the environment, right? Their world around them coming to coming to terms with it almost. And again, I think this is something we see through the movie. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations, as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. 
Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The Multicultural Team and Awareness to Action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. So let's talk about the movie A Few Good Men. It came out, in, like I said, in 1992, which makes me feel really old. I remember seeing this movie in the theater and um, starring uh, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, uh, Demi Moore, all of whom were very big stars at the time. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, who has gone on to be you know, one of the great screenwriters and you know for both movies and television and also a pretty good director who's made quite a few movies in fact i think we'll probably be revisiting aaron sorkin in another one of his movies and the uh, the upcoming series but he has written things like uh, the american president he was responsible for the tv series the west wing he wrote moneyball the social network charlie wilson's war a few good men as we said the movie steve jobs which i think he no, he didn't direct that, but also the TV series The Newsroom, so a very prolific screenwriter. And as we said, it was directed by Rob Reiner, who made his uh, first impact in the 1970s TV series All in the Family, which we I often talk about in our trainings, but nobody else knows anything about it, it seems. So, uh, again, to, <laughs> to get to the age. But he went on, uh, started his directing career in 1984 with movie this is spinal tap and he made a movie called the sure thing and then he went on to make stand by me the princess bride when harry met sally misery a few good men and then he which is our big big movies right i mean he was really hitting it out of the park in the 1980s and early 1990s then he made a movie called north which was a notorious bomb with bruce willis and almost pretty much ended his career. He went on to make uh, The American President, but after that, you know, he made a bunch of movies, but nobody's ever heard of them. So um, it's kind of downhill for good old Rob Reiner from, from that point on. I think both of these guys are sevens in real life. And when I was reading, I'm sorry, when I was listening to the script and watching the movie, I kept thinking about sevens writing about ones. Right. And that's kind of what's happening here. There's kind of a lightness to it. Right. There's a formulaic quality to the movie. I think even the movie kind of has this mix of seven and one in that it's, you know, it's not a creatively visual movie or anything like that. It's very simple, straightforward, methodical, but still engaging and entertaining, I think. Right. But what was your reaction to the movie? I would say the engaging part is in the uh, suspense and the events. It's actually the rhythm is really interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the events are uh, unpredictable. So I would agree with you on this is the touch of a seven of making you really feeling like you're in uh, a kind of an adventure or so. So I would agree to that. Maria Jose? Again, never occurred to me, but I was thinking how would have been a one-ish movie directed and or written by a one. <laughs> it would have been... <laughs> it would have been punishment, right? <laughs> it would have been awful, yes. So, so I think that it's, it's more compassionate. It's like more 
uh, it's lighter, as you say, and it it's just possible to watch. I think the yeah. other one would have been torture. Yeah, but it, but you know it's interesting because if you uh, follow the career of Aaron Sorkin, although again I think he is a seven in real life, there's this almost kind of a preachy quality to all of his work, right? There's this sort of moral lesson that's being imparted through almost everything that he does. So it's a really, for me, really interesting in capturing that connection between points one and seven. So uh, let's see what else. It was a successful movie, made $140 million domestically off of, I think it was a $40 million budget, went on to make about $250 million uh, altogether. Let's see. It was fairly well-reviewed, 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and an 89% audience score. A couple of the reviews. A brisk and familiar courtroom drama of the old school, as pleasant to watch as it is predictable. A few good men, more than anything else, is a tribute to pure star power. And I would agree with that. I mean, certainly this was one of uh, Jack Nicholson's most impactful roles in a whole career of impactful roles another review is uh, the driving force of the story is watching cruz's character develop some backbone and staying power well, that was gene siskel and uh, let's see finally the uh, the the literally in your face camera work can easily expose an actor's weaknesses but with the lens framed on nicholson's bulldog visage he lets loose with a volcanic fury his demagoguery and gung-ho self-righteousness are something to behold. Right? So this was interesting to me, and, and uh, at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves, Nicholson's character, right, I was kind of, I wanted to be able to confidently say he was a transmitting one, right? But there was a whole lot of eight stuff going on there as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, yeah, so it was almost kind of, you know, the, the, my, my takeaway from it was there was, it, it was almost like a script for, a transmitting one, but acted by an Enneagram, uh, somebody being an Enneagram type eight. I don't know what Nicholson is. People say he's a seven. I don't know. Clearly, he was channeling an eight's energy there, I felt. Yeah, I agree. I was observing that. And there are quite a lot of uh, one-ish things in him, in the character. Yeah. And the kind of tightness of the character is more one-ish than eight-ish, I think. Yeah. Um, and the justification of his acts. I think yes. that the way in which, in which he does that, it's duty. It's not because I want to. And so, so I can see a lot of one in him, a lot of yeah. transmitting one for sure. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and again, this gets to why it can be so hard to Enneagram type characters, right? Because any movie is a collaborative experience, right? So the screenwriter could be, you know, consciously or not, you know, writing a one character, but then you get an actor playing it as an eight and you get this mis mishmash, right, of different things. Uh, but certainly a lot of the language he was talking about, you could easily see coming from um, a type one, right? This whole focus on code and, um, you know, doing, again, doing the right thing and knowing what's the right thing to do, right? Okay, good. So let's see what else. Uh, so we said uh, starring Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon. Kiefer Sutherland, his character, Lieutenant Kendricks, I think was a pretty darn good example of a transmitting one. We'll come back to that. Kevin Pollack, sort of a type nine character, I felt, uh, who was the uh, third attorney in the group with uh, Demi Moore and Tom Cruise. Uh, the two guys on trial played, um, let's see, their names were Dawson and Downey. 
And the guy that played uh, Dawson, oddly enough, had never acted before. He was not an actor. He did not. He was actually chosen. He was a, um, a production assistant of some sort. And Rob Reiner couldn't find somebody to play that role that he felt good with. And he sees this guy and he says, hey, how about you? Do you act, you know, and kind of uh, brought him into the movie. So I thought he did a good job for that. So uh, all things considered. Okay. Again, as we said, uh, directed by Rob Reiner and uh, written by Aaron Sorkin. Content-wise, nothing, I didn't think, too harmful in this. You know, a little bit of profanity. There was a really creepy episode of sexual harassment uh, that Nicholson, you know, pulls when they're having lunch in Guantanamo Bay uh, that uh, was pretty pretty insulting and awful. And uh, let's see here. Cultural impact, we always like to talk about. The big thing was the line, you can't handle the truth. I mean, if you were in the United States anywhere in the you know early 1990s, people were saying this all the time, and people of a certain age still kind of pull this one out in their bag of movie quotes. Okay, so I'm curious for you guys, you know, being from uh, different places, uh, Maria Jose, <laughs> I see you shaking your head already. So tell us the impact of a few good men on the culture of Chile. Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that we could only see these movies, um, the cinema, and they were limited movies. Not every movie made it to the theater. So I don't remember the movie. And maybe some people watched it, but um, it wasn't a big thing. Yeah. All right. Tamar, do you remember it from when yeah, it came out? Yeah, I do. It's it's it was not a big movie, but one of the movies that has been watched within the uh, you know English speaking segments of the society, especially due to the uh, stars of the movie. I mean, at that time, yeah. the Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, uh, Jack Nicholson were really big stars, so so people yes. were following their movies, and the movie was good as well. So so yeah. some some impact, but not really like a, a top movie. Yeah, or maybe I was too young. <laughs> oh, well, I knew. You. I, I, I was waiting say? for this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I'm say? surprised it took you this long to get there. All right, great. Okay. Um, thank so, you. Was it 1992? Um, 1992. You were what? No, well, two? eighteen. Eight, was, well, there you go. Okay. All right. Yeah. You weren't that young. Okay. All right. And again, one of the other things, too, is that um, it really helped establish the career of Aaron Sorkin, who went on to do uh, a lot of big things in, in Hollywood. So so let's talk about the first scene, and or not the first scene, but the first scene we're going to talk about. And we're kind of identifying three stretches of movie we're going to focus on, one at the very beginning, one a little bit further in, and then the final uh, courtroom scene. So the movie opens up depicting this uh, code red that Dawson and Downey are inflicting on this guy, Santiago. Code red is a punitive action for somebody who's not following the rules. It's not an official uh, punishment, but um, it's an unofficial punishment that the fellow soldiers inflict on a soldier to help keep them in line. And right away, we're getting into this idea of what's the right thing to do, right? Are we following the rules? Or are we following the you know, the the norms and mores that uh, come up. So from there, now, of course, uh, you've seen the movie, uh, Santiago dies in the midst of that. They're charged with murder. And uh, this is what kicks off the whole movie. Now, after that scene, we go into the opening credits of the movie, which again, first of all, uh, as far as the, the theme being established, uh, you know, the title of the movie establishes the theme of, you know, type one. But the opening credits, in case you missed it, 
boy, oh boy, do they scream type one. So go ahead, Maria. They do. And it's all about symmetry, perfection, about doing all these, I don't know how you say, call these things, but all the things that uh, these guys do with the arms. And just for me, it was a pleasure to watch, you know? Yeah. All that, those things cascading and being done just so nicely. And (laughs) I could also spot some things that were not perfectly timed. I did. <laughs> so, so for our listeners, let me just back up here for a second for our listeners. So so the, the opening credit starts with a marching band, right? An overhead shot of a marching band, uh, band. And then they cut to the silent drill platoon, it's called, where the Marines have this platoon that, you know, does these rifle drills without saying anything, right? And there's this beautiful, you know, some kind of symmetry and action of as they do all the maneuvers with their weapons. There's something about that symmetry that it just, it's how it should be. It, it mm-hmm. is, it's, and that's how it feels. And when it is like that, you can relax. And it's beautiful, you know, (laughs) a pleasure. What can I say? That's how it feels. Right, right. All right. And so um, so what was interesting to me and what was kind of a nice move by the director was uh, as the the drill platoon finishes or is, you know, uh, finishing their um, their routine, uh, along comes Demi Moore. And so it's this nice segue to this very one-ish behavior, you know, from this very one-ish behavior to the type one character who's the the moral core of this movie. Okay. And Maria Jose, do you remember what she's doing when she walks past? She's rehearsing her lines. What she wants to tell (laughs) her boss or whoever is in charge of this case, that she wants to be the, um, defend these two guys from Guantanamo and she's rehearsing it and she's not only concerned about the message itself, but how it's going, the tone of it, how it's going to be interpreted and the grammar of it. It all has to be perfect. (laughs) Yes. Yes. She's rehearsing the grammar. And of course, in the meeting, she kind of screws up the grammar anyway, right? And, (laughs) and, you know, and even as she's walking into the, you know, before she walks in, as she's walking into the building, she's criticizing herself for sounding stupid even during her rehearsal right how else can you get it right (laughs) that's right okay so she goes in it's interesting because she appears before uh, her boss and two other attorneys uh, they're navy attorneys who are you know represent uh, people charged of crimes in the military and it's clear they just want to brush this under the rug right uh jessup uh played the jack nicholson character is a politically up-and-coming military officer they want this to go away so it's not a stain on the military or on jessup they know that she's probably not the person to let it go away so they tell her she's not going to get it now there's some interesting things when she's in that room uh first of all she walks in and her boss tells her you know have a seat and what does she say when he says have a seat something like no thank you i'm I'm fine (laughs) yeah i'm fine standing to which he says sit down Right. Uh, you know, basically. And when she sits down, I don't know if you noticed this, but you, you see the three people sitting there, right? Uh, her and her two um, associates, I guess. Her back is not touching the seat of the chair, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the other two are sort of slouching, right? So she's very prim and proper and upright. Okay. Now, they do not assign the case to her because, um, or they do not assign her as the lead defendant because she has a reputation of taking forever to try a case and again they just want it to go away so the do you remember the comment they made about her when they sort of characterized her 
Yeah, all passion, no street smart. smart yeah. something all like. passion, no street smart. Right? Yeah. Which is kind of the opposite of what we're going to see next, right, with, um, with Cruz's character, right? So, Tamar, tell us how we first meet Tom Cruise in the movie. Actually, uh, as far as I remember, it was while he was playing baseball. Is, is this the first yeah. scene as uh, yes. I remember softball, it right? Yeah. right? Softball, yes. yeah. And yeah. he was really, I mean, relaxed and uh, making fun, even uh, uh, sarcastic with his uh, discussion with Demi Moore, most of the time making jokes about her, about the situation, about what he's going to do. And it was like really completely the opposite of whatever uh, Demi Moore represents. So... Yeah, it was very yeah. interesting contrast. Yes. So so they, they actually, the first scene of him playing softball, and by the way, I have to point out that his uh, Tom Cruise, for all of his gifts, uh, hitting a softball is not one of them. His swing is atrocious, but uh, that's a whole nother story. He actually, in his first scene, he's having a conversation about another case, and he's pleading down the case, right? So he's arguing with another attorney over uh, one of his clients who bought uh, $10 worth of oregano thinking it was pot, and and uh, so he plea bargains the case down to almost nothing. And, you know, so that kind of establishes who he is. And then him and the other guy, Weinberg, go in for their formal meeting with Demi Moore in her office. Okay. Marie Jose, tell us about that meeting. He gets into the room eating an apple. Mm-hmm. Almost finished. Very aggressively eating an apple. Yes. Yeah. Not very politely. She doesn't really like that, I think. There's something about her look. At him that shows almost disdain, observing him looking up and down, and he notices that. And at some point he says, have I done something wrong? Because she's kind of uh, scrutinizing him and judging him without saying much or anything about it. But it, it's not necessary because of her look. So that line, have I done something to offend you? comes back multiple times, right? So he actually uh, asks her that, he asks Kendrick that, and I think he asked Jessup that as well, but I know at least three times he asked that. And so, which is interesting for me, because this is often how people feel when they're with ones, right? (laughs) They they feel like, did I do something wrong here? Why am I getting this look? Right. So as I'm watching that scene, particularly the most recent time, uh, I had this vision of me, Tamara and Maria Jose sitting together, you know, and uh, (laughs) and you giving us that look that you you give us right now, Maria Jose, about, uh, you know, uh oh, did I do something wrong? And Tamara shrinking into the corner, uh, you know, hoping that people will think he's not even there. (laughs) You're exaggerating, Maria. All right, good. So, um, so what else happens? And and when he's done, she gives him the trash can so that he can throw it away. (laughs) I think she's afraid that he's going to put it somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he wanted to, she wanted to show him that she was watching him eat and that she was happy that it was, he was done with it, the apple. Right. And so she's very clear in this movie because she does have authority over him. And uh, even though he is assigned to be the lead defender, she's the boss, really. Uh, she has she has higher rank and she's very clear about it. And she says, you know, my job is to make sure you do your job and my jurisdiction is in your face. Right. Kind of uh, a line. She's very clear about who's in charge. Yeah. And, and at the end of this uh, scene, she was like qualifying his uh, uh, 
qualifications, uh, whether he's fit for the job or not. And that that shows the, mer- the meritocracy that uh, the uh, one can fall in. It's actually following what kind of uh, certificates do you have, what kind of training, what kind of so on, right. and really uh, overlooking the street smart or wh- whatever other yes. talents or skills that can be there. Great point, Tamar. I mean, that's one of the derailers we identify for the Enneagram Type 1, This uh, these professional derailers. It's a tendency to look at the scores, the metrics, rather than the intangibles, whereas Caffey is all about the intangibles, right? He's all about finding the wiggle room, the gray zone, the, you know, finding an exp- expeditious solution to something rather than going through all the processes and procedures. I want to say that from the beginning, the movie establishes itself as very methodical, very consistent, very clear, very you know simple in its uh, uh, visuals and so forth. She was just mad at him for not wanting to follow the process that she was suggesting. Yes, because when you don't do that, I mean, there's no way that you're going to have the outcome you can you you want. So mm-hmm. she wanted to follow a particular process. And going to all the detail and was afraid that if you didn't, we're just going to lose the case. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So the next part of the movie we move into is a sequence of meetings that is setting up the relationships between the different characters. And the first one, they show the the movie shows a meeting between Colonel Jessup, Jack Nicholson character, uh, Lieutenant Kendricks, played by Kiefer Sutherland, and uh, I forget his name. Uh, I forget what his rank is, but Markinson. I don't know if he's a captain, a captain, or a major. Who is the XO or executive officer of the company, and uh, played by J.T. Walsh, and they are debating what to do about Santiago because they're you know he's they don't believe he's fit. He keeps screwing up, and uh, he went outside the chain of command by writing a letter of complaint higher up in the ranks above Jessup. So Markinson's point of view is we got to get this guy out of here, right? We ought to just reassign him, move him, get rid of him, or else the other troops are going to you know, kick his butt, and we can't have that. And at first, Nicholson is pretending that he agrees. Yes, that's a great idea, but then he takes a different direction. When you guys want to tell us where... Mark, uh, where Jessup goes with that kind of argument. He almost pretends to to move to send him away and then says, no, you know what? And and it's like this message of he has to be fit for the job. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no other option. And if he right. isn't, we'll make him be. But uh, yes. uh, so we will not make any concessions here. Yes. 
And he talks a lot about responsibility in that session. Yeah, actually, I felt when he was, uh, the part that he was agreeing, he was more like being sarcastic. Like, oh, that's a great thing to do, making things nicely. And uh, But this is not about it. I mean, it's about yeah. uh, being disciplined. So yes. he was saying it in a way that looks in the, or uh, sounds in the very beginning that he's agreeing, but at the end it was like being sarcastic about the opinion of uh, his ex. Right. Absolutely right. Because what he does is he says, you know, in fact, what we should do is just call Castro and say we're going to surrender and leave Guantanamo Bay. And then he calls for his aide and he says, hey, will you call the president and tell him we're abandoning Guantanamo Bay? And, you know, and then he says, oh, ne never mind. You know what? In fact, we have a responsibility. And he even says he, talk, he talks about responsibility a couple of times. And then he says, you know, that might be the easy way, but it's not the American way. Right. And so there's this, you know, we're going to do this the right way, which is, you know, the kind of a Superman language of truth, justice in the American way from back in the 1940s and 50s. He clearly is deciding, I'm going to fix this guy. We're not just going to get rid of this problem. We're going to fix this guy. But unfortunately, their attempts to fix him end up killing him, Okay, which, again, becomes sort of problematic. Now, the next part here that we want to talk about was where you yeah, go ahead, Maria. So, so I think that there was. And continuing with our hypothesis that he might be, uh, Jessup might be a transmitting one, there's something about affecting their reputation. So mm -hmm. if they let him leave, he would tell everyone. He had already told people being inside. Now being outside, he would affect their reputation and that's something that you don't want. It's You don't want reproach. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So then we go to Galloway, uh, again, the, um, the Demi Moore character confronting Tom Cruise's Caffey uh, on the ball field because the, uh, the two defendants have been flown to the U.S. from Guantanamo. Tom Cruise hasn't bothered to meet with them in the eight or ten hours since they got there, and she's upset by that. And so she really hands it to him and, you know, tells him you're going to, you know, do this the right way. And if not, I'm going to have you reassigned. And she even at some point says to him, if you're going to do this in the fast food, slick ass Persian bizarre manner that you usually do these things, you know, this isn't going to work. So uh, clearly a um, I've never been to a Persian bizarre, so I don't know what that really means. But, you know, so we kind of get the point she's trying to make here that uh, you're going to do this the right way. In his mind, Kaffee had the result in mind already. He had yes. decided the outcome of this whole thing. Yes. And it he didn't need to do much, apparently, because he knew what was going to happen, what he wanted and what was a reasonable result. Yes. And I think this is yeah. this is like a, a theme until they join forces uh, by the end they join forces for the for the trial. I, it was a theme like he decided in the very beginning and he knows what he's going to do and she's seeing that following the process is the only way to get good results. So he decided and on the results and she wants really to follow the process to achieve results. Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely right. right. <laughs> what's that what's that Mario's and she was right <laughs> she was right of course she was <laughs> so 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 um uh, it, it, what Caffey had planned was a, a plea bargain right so he was going to have them plead to conduct on becoming a marine and um you know and uh, and settle for 12 years in jail rather than lifetime uh, sentence and he goes and proposes that to them thinking that they will be happy to only you know have to serve 12 years and but they decide 
you know, no, we we didn't do anything wrong. We were following an order, right? And they talk about their code, which is unit, core, God, country, right? That's where, that's what their loyalty lies to, first to their unit, then to the Marine Corps, then to God, and then to country. So we have this uh, theme, you know, again, throughout the movie of uh, this loyalty and structure of whose rules we follow. And there's also this theme of, you know, God watching over us, right? That comes back with Kendricks, where he says, you know, God was watching and Santiago got what he deserved, right? Which is, you know, a pretty, you know, a pretty nasty thing to say, right? So they, uh, they have no interest in the plea bargain and they decide that they are going to plead not guilty. There's only one way, and it's the right way. And if I did yes. the right thing, no alternative. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, even if it means I'm going to suffer more for it, right? Yep. I'm still doing the right thing. Okay. So next scene in this sequence is when when Caffey and um, uh, Callaway and Weinberg go down to Guantanamo Bay wearing their whites, their white uniforms, which they immediately find out is a big mistake, right? Because it makes them a target. Go ahead, Maria. Say. It's funny because it's this, it's not like they didn't think about it and just made a mistake. They thought about it. Yes. And they decided that the best thing to do was to wear white because it was yes. too warm. And then it was just the worst thing to do. Yes. And they felt bad for it. So that's the, I think, a very typical one-ish thing. Preparing in advance to do the best thing or the right thing. And then, yeah, feeling awful yeah. when you... <laughs> it, it. it also Yeah, and, and it also shows their disconnection between you know, life in cozy Washington and life on the front line of a hostile military zone, right? There's the, you know, there's the real world, so to speak, which is, you know, Guantanamo Bay. And then there's the, the kind of the protected world. And again, that's a theme because as we'll see in Jessup, that's his whole motivation. It's his job to stand on that wall and protect the rest of us so we you know we can sleep at night and he wants to be respected for that right he he doesn't want to be questioned for that because he takes on this responsibility yeah so and interestingly enough joanne calloway wears the khakis right she doesn't make the mistake yeah the exactly and this is like a message like uh, it keeps on being delivered that she did uh, she does the study she study things uh, uh, and she uh, gives it uh, enough care and uh, really um, get into details until they uh, get things right so it, it shows although she is having the same environment like the others she's living in washington she's not she has never been into a place like this but she has done her the homework and w yes. which is reflecting the mode of operation of a one that really doing the homework making sure that no mistake will happen yes i wouldn't be surprised if she had the white in her bag <laughs> just in case right? just in case <laughs> all right good so they have their initial meeting with jessup and uh, Tom Cruise kind of makes clear that this is just a formality, right? Again, he's trying to settle this as quickly as possible and not ruffle any feathers. Uh, then they have lunch with uh, with Jessup and, you know, they're having a good time. You can see them kind of laughing about stories at first and then they turn to business and Cruz wants to kind of, you know, make it quick and get out of there. But then Demi Moore, uh, the, the, the Joanne Calloway, has a couple of comments, right? So tell us about that scene. Yeah, so so 
of course he's denying and he's lying, Jessup, I mean. As you're saying, um, Tom Cruise wants to finish that quickly. Although, at some point, I started getting a bit of respect for him because I think that what he wanted was to get information out of him without rubbing things the wrong way, without making Jessup um, become defensive. So I think he was smart. Maybe not all the way, not all along, but at some point he got it. She didn't. She right. wanted to do every step, to take every step and say everything and was very strong on some points and Jessup just stopped her. And it didn't get to anything. It was right. not productive at all. Yeah, and, and uh, I would support what you said, uh, Marie-José, that uh, by the end of this scene, uh, Tom Cruise just asked for the evidence that he wanted. It, it looked like he had a plan, but he, he wanted to be smart about uh, executing his plan while she wanted to be so direct and really uh, playing the game of authority. I have a kind of authority versus your authority. And that was clash of authority that was won by Jessup. So um, I, I, I would like to, to agree that the, uh, Danny's way was smarter. And, but at the end, uh, Jack Nicholson, Jessup wanted to have the formality uh, going. I mean, the, the process, you have to ask in a nice way. There's a way to ask for a person in my rank. And he insisted yes. on that. Yeah. yeah. He very clearly puts them in their place, right? Yeah. He very clearly establishes that you, you know, you, you have to respond to me, right? This is my world. And if you want these things, you have to ask nicely, right? And uh, kind of humiliates them. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, make one further comment on the Tom Cruise or Lieutenant Caffey uh, style of interrogation. Right. It seems like, you know, it's it's what we would call here, again, people of a certain age would call the, the Columbo approach, right, after the police detective Columbo, who kind of seemed like, you know, not a very bright guy and would kind of ramble. And then just as he's walking out of the room, he would stop and turn over his shoulder and ask a question that would kind of be really insightful and sort of break the case open. And there's a, you know, Tom Cruise's character does that same sort of thing as they're about to leave. He just says, oh, by the way, you know, can you send the manifest or you know, whatever it is? Uh, so, uh, yeah, again, a, a very uh, one-ish uh, response there from Jessup of, you know, that we are protecting this country. We have responsibilities. We are doing the right thing. You know, how dare you question me starts to come up. Okay. One final thing that happens on that trip is that they go with Lieutenant Kendrick, again, the Kiefer Sutherland character, to um, go and see Santiago's room. And it is very, very clear that uh, Lieutenant Kendrick has nothing but contempt for these people. Uh, the fact that they are investigating him just, uh, you can tell, makes him crazy. There's a huge self-righteousness in him. This is where he talks about, you know, God watching and, uh, you know, that uh, Santiago got um, what he deserved. And um, the, the other point we'll make out, and this takes us back to this issue of the subtypes, when we think about the preserving one, we think about uh, you know, perfection around the nest and nurturing, right? So the preserving one is the character that is very strict about the environment, right? Keeping things neat and in place and right aligned. And when Tom Cruise opens Santiago's uh, cabinet, and, and you can see all the uniforms there perfectly spaced, right? Now, no way to know what uh, Santiago's personality type was, but the ethos of the military is that kind of precision. 
right? That perfection around the environment, right, is is an extremely common theme. Okay, so uh, comments on that? Yeah, and I think that it's the military in general, not just him, as you say, because when you see Kaffi's wardrobe was the same, and that's yes. when he had the insight later in the movie. But so everybody, exactly does that. right, exactly right. Okay, good. So the final uh, scene that we want to talk about is the um, actual trial itself. Now, of course, a lot happens between Guantanamo Bay and the trial itself, and it's a lot of going back and forth. They get they get leads, they get information, but then things go wrong. Uh, for example, Markinson, who was going to be their star witness, ends up committing suicide after meticulously dressing himself in his uh, uniform, right? Perfectly polished everything and uh, perfectly placed and probably a bit of a mess after he shot himself in the mouth. But that's another story, right? So, um, but, again, but there's something in that line of the story about guilt and wanting to do the right thing. Mm that it's also very very one-ish. So yes. I want to do the right thing. I'm not allowed to do the right thing or I'm not able. Therefore, I feel <clears throat> very guilty about it. I'm not able to hold that. And then I, so I commit suicide. Yeah, let's see. What also happens is that they find out that uh, Downey, who had claimed before to have been there when uh, Kendrick issued the order for the Code Red, they find out during the trial that he was not actually there. And this really undermines their defense because now they're not credible witnesses because they had lied about this up to this point. Right. And so and this, again, was uh, the inexperience of uh, Joanne Calloway. Um, in her you know work as an attorney who had not caught this and between these two things it pretty much puts tom cruise over the edge he goes out with a bottle of uh, i think it was jack daniels and gets blind blindly drunk i think at that point you can see happening what tamar was saying at the beginning where she becomes a bit more pragmatic and he becomes more metho- methodical so it's it's kind of their comp- they complement each other and they adopt what the other one does and and that's when they start to do a better job uh, I'll, I'll just say that this is the you know most of this movie is this tension this polarity between what's right and what's effective or efficient at this point and it's at these this part where these two things start to come together and we realize you can't always separate those two things and in fact we probably shouldn't right um we we have to kind of develop a comfort with each one of those qualities and recognize when doing the right thing is the right thing and when doing the expeditious thing is the expeditious thing and understanding that it's not always clear when we should do that. And I think it has to do with expanding the definition of perfection. Because mm, it's so the rationale, as we said at the beginning, is so I want to feel perfect. Therefore, I think that following the rules and doing certain things will make me feel perfect. Now, that story, it's limited. And sometimes the rules or the method or the process, it's not enough to have a perfect outcome. So I think what, what's happening here is that she realizes if we focus on Joanne Galloway as kind of the one representative of the movie, that doing more effective things gets her to a more perfect place. Right. And that's what once we need to understand as well. 
So it's not always the rules. And it doesn't mean that you have to break the rules, but it's doing things that experience or the facts show that are more effective. And you get to the place where you want to get that feels even more perfect. Yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, what Maria Jose said. It's it's really about rewriting the story of perfection. So is it uh, following certain uh, imaginary standard that are that is not applicable in reality or really going enough good to achieve something on the ground? So and and this right. is I guess what uh, what happened at this point where they joined forces and they added their perspective together and this is what got them into winning the case at the end. And and there's also something, there's this scene where Demi Moore warns Tom Cruise about not going too far, not taking it too far because he can get into real trouble. And I think that, at least in my experience, is when you see that your environment, so one, your environment is following the rules, then you can relax, relax and you're not the only guardian of the right thing. And then you can do other things. You can uh, be less rigid. You can you can um, not give in, but compromise. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you start to work toward that. You know um, what's truly right in a bigger sense. Okay, and and that's how we work with all of the enneagram types, right? Don't reject the strategy. Don't think it's a bad thing, but rewrite it so that it allows for more adaptive sort of behaviors, okay? And this is a good example of that. And in a sense, it's almost like they're switching roles here because mm-hmm. now he is the idealist, right? He is the one who, you know, I'm going to do the right thing. And uh, it may be ruining my career. It may get me thrown in jail, right? But, but this is the right thing to do. And so this is when he decides to call... Jack Nicholson's Colonel Jessup onto the stand, and they have a back and forth that's really not going very well for Caffey at first, right? Uh, Nicholson's getting the upper hand, and as he's deciding how far to push him, he goes over to the uh, the attorney's table and uh, has a, pours himself a glass of water. And uh, you guys remember what was happening while he was pouring the water, drinking the water? His hand was shaking, right? I mean, he was terrified, you could tell, right, that he knew he was getting into a tough space here. So he pushes uh, the Jessup character to uh, to tell the truth. He asks him, you know, um, did, did you order the code red? And Jessup says, you, you know, I, I forget exactly what he says to him in response, but he says, uh, he says, no, I'll answer it. And then, um, and then Tom Cruise asks him, you know, did you order the code red? And Jack Nicholson says something. And then Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. Right. Yes, and this is where Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. And then he goes into this um, uh, diatribe about, you know, I'm the one protecting you people. I'm the one standing on the wall. I'm the one who's responsible for people's lives. And, you know, and then he says to him again, did you order the uh, the code red? And that's exactly where Kathy wants, wanted to get him to. Yes, exactly. He wanted right. to feel like that, to push him until he got to that point where he would just need to say the truth. Yes, exactly right. And he needed to justify, you know, that he was doing the right thing. And he says, you're goddamn right I ordered the code red without even realizing that what he did, you know, what he just said was going to end up, you know, end him up in, in prison. Right. And he's even baffled when they do finally arrest him. Yeah. And, and I think it's, 
as with everyone, but once in particular, the cognitive dissonance kicking in. And in his mind, he was an angel. I mean, yes. a protector uh, of the whole, not only country, but world probably, and doing what he had to do in order to do his job. There was no reason to fear for saying the truth. Yeah, he was expecting to be thanked for what he has done, not to be yes. tried or being uh, convicted or something. And he was yeah. so, as, as you said, he was baffled. I mean, how come? I mean, what are you doing, guys? <laughs> yes. It's like you have to decorate <laughs> me instead of what you're doing right now. <laughs> right. right, right. So, um, so the, the, you know, what happens next again is uh, Jessup is arrested, and then they have to uh, announce the verdict regarding Downey and Dawson. And uh, they are found guilty of conduct unbecoming an officer, and they are dishonorably discharged, right? uh, which is interesting. So, you know, think about that charge, right? Conduct unbecoming a Marine, right? So they're just doing something they shouldn't be doing as a Marine, okay? And the discharge from the military is dishonorable, right? You, uh, you know, you violate your honor. I mean, again, it's this idea that you didn't do the right thing. Okay, which is the ongoing theme of you know what's happening in the Marines is what's sad is that they didn't uh, accept the initial deal because they didn't they wanted to avoid this they didn't yes. want to avoid prison they wanted to avoid being discharged in a dishonorable way and that's yes. what they got yes and you can see yes. how confused they became when they they got the uh, verdict is like i mean they don't really understand what's going on and uh, and the clear question what did i do wrong and then the aha moment when uh, uh, when he answered saying uh, because we stood in the i mean we stood in the wrong uh, side we had to uh, stand by the people who the, yeah. do not have power Yes, we, we didn't protect the weak, yes, right? Exactly. We didn't protect the weak. So it's God. like it's like and, a, an aha moment. It's a kind of enlightenment. Now I understand what happens. Yes, yes. And I think maybe Dawson got it quicker than Downey did, right? Downey was a bit slow on, on most things in, in this movie. But, uh, you know, there was this clear, well, wait, you know, wait a minute. What did I do? I was following orders. I was, you know, I was protecting my unit. I was serving the core. I was doing what God wants, what my country wants. And uh, so this real confusion, again, which we see in ones. Well, why is everybody angry at me? I'm just trying to do the right thing here. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so again, you know, it, it really does feel, you know, I'd seen this movie a number of times. And then when we chose this for a movie uh, to illustrate type one, I had this moment of panic uh, a little bit like, well, OK, is this really going to capture the theme? But boy, oh boy, it's just all throughout the movie in the same way that uh, the others have been so far. Yeah, and, and the anger expressed by Jack Nicholson in this scene, I mean, the, the scene in between the interrogation and uh, being arrested, it's like the highest level of anger expressed. So. Yes, he's going he's gonna to rip up his uh, rip off his head and then pee down his neck yeah, or something yeah. is, is what he, he says to him in a very violent way. Um, so, all right. So a couple of words about the subtypes of the uh, Enneagram type one. So uh, we have the preserving, navigating and transmitting. 
submitting. And again, I think we see elements of that, if not characters uh, for all of them. I don't know that we see a really clear example of the preserving one, but there are certainly, again, with this meticulousness about the environment that's so central to the Marine Yeah, Corps, lots of attention to units. the details. I mean, the, the uniforms, yes. uh, uh, yes. you know, the you said already the cabinet where things are organized in a very systematic way. So, I mean, it, it, it goes through uh, out the whole process, yeah. I mean, the whole movement. Yeah. What is the name of um, Coffee's kind of the second attorney? Kendrick's. No. Ken- oh, the attorney? Yeah. Uh, uh, Weinberg? Yes. Uh-huh. He you think a, he was a preserving, a preserving one? one? Hmm. He struck me as more of a nine-ish kind of oh, character, yes. I thought. Yeah, right? I, I feel uh, the yeah, same way. So, you know, I have yeah. I have no responsibility here whatsoever, <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of comment. and right. Um, so uh, I think Lieutenant Kendricks was a pretty good example of a transmitting one yeah. character. I mean, yeah. he had that feel downright, uh, you know, I mean, you could just feel that heat and that intensity that you see in a, a transmitting one. Again, argue, uh, arguable whether the Jack Nicholson character mm-hmm. was a transmitting one or an eight. Or an eight yeah. Um, yeah, but clearly also the uh, Joanne Calloway character is navigating. Absolutely. Um, a navigating type one. And so the navigating type one, the difference. So we got the preserving one who is all about the environment and nesting and nurturing and making sure things are in order. The transmitting one is all about, you know, changing the world and making the world right. Okay? Whereas with the navigating one, it's what is the right way to act is the main theme okay given my you know my societal environment what what are the right behaviors to follow the right impact to create yeah yeah, so so the the right image to create rather than Mm -hmm. impact i'd say right but you know uh but certainly it's this what will people think of me as i do this what will they say when i'm gone Mm -hmm. right so i want to make sure i did the right thing maria jose talk about that a little bit please about my world, you mean? About, about the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, transmitting one, you can s- tell that it's like more severe. Like mm-hmm. I want, they want. It's more about punishment a bit, and actions have consequences. And whereas the, with the navigating one, it's harder to see the one that we usually read in books mm-hmm. because it's not necessarily all about the environment, but it's more about what to say, how to say it. And I think it's really well reflected in the first scene when she's rehearsing her lines Yes, because it's about how you do it and what you do and what impression you make and, and what people think of you. So it's, it's all about that and kind of this, there's like a suffering trying to do the right thing and a willingness to just do it no matter what consequence there are for you personally, I think. And that's for all ones. But So the uh, one final thought I want to make here is that um, often when people are trying to identify their Enneagram type, um, they can have a hard time understanding the difference between a one and a three. And part of that is is because threes, particularly the preserving three, can have this feeling of perfectionism, right? Can have this feeling of this pressure of having to do things in a way that looks good, but it's not the same, right? It's clearly a different sort of quality. And I think this movie 
really draws a really nice distinction. I mean, it's it's kind of exaggerated, but um, if you're not sure if you're a one or a three, watching this movie might help. Yeah. There's one line um, where Kathy um, asked her, why are you always giving me your resume? Yes. And and I think, that, and, and she says, because I want you to think well of me. I want you yes. to think that I'm professional, that I'm competent, something like that. And there's a lot of about this meritoc- meritocracy that Tamara was saying before. And it's, I tell you the things that will build my identity in your eyes. Yes, and, yeah. and that's what she's doing all the time. And yeah. he can't understand why. Yeah, which is one of the reasons, too, why th- ones often think they're threes. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're ambitious and they do care what other people think. So uh, so it's a common mistyping and uh, from both directions. Okay, great. So uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us in this episode of the Enneagram in a Movie. Next time, we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 2 and the movie Almost Famous. So we look forward to having you join us. And goodbye for now. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we ask you to go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review. Visit us at awarenesstoaction.com and follow Awareness to Action on social media.